0: Welcome to Asbury Pod. This week, we talked to Eileen Chapman, Asbury Park City Councilperson, Director of the Bruce Springsteen Archives and Center for American Music for Monmouth University, Board Member of the Asbury Park Music Foundation, and Member of a Long List of Other Asbury-centric Organizations. We talked to Eileen about the upcoming summer concert series, Music Mondays at Springwood Park, and along the way here what it was like to work at and manage the legendary Mrs. J's, the legendary Stone Pony, and the legendary Fast Lane, another equally boring and uninteresting places. Welcome, Eileen.
1: The matters addressed in this podcast represent my own personal views and opinions concerning issues affecting the citizens of Asbury Park. In my capacity as the Deputy Mayor of the City of Asbury Park, they do not necessarily represent the official position of the city or the official position of the Asbury Park City Council as a whole. I am developing and implementing this podcast in an effort to keep citizens informed. However, this is not an official City of Esbury Park podcast and does not, and I repeat, does not represent the official position of the city or the governing body.
0: Their interviews always hit the mark. So subscribe to Esbury Park. I mean pod. Be informed, don't be in the dark. Everybody listen to Esbury Park. I mean pod.
2: Everything you need know brought to you by Amy and Joe if you're local they're the pod for you
0: but Bennies are welcome and shoebies too from Route 35 to
2: Convention Hall Sperry Pod covers it all As Berry Pod I love you
3: I love you
1: It's May 1 and we want to welcome all of our Asbury pod listeners and Eileen this is like the easiest podcast in the world and if you and one of the reasons it's the delay in putting it up is if you're like oh I wish I hadn't said that we delete it out. Okay, Nobody is ever so. We have had people say illegal shit on this podcast. We've had to delete mm-hmm. out. <laughs> I have said, me and Jess Alamo got very, very drunk one night and did the podcast and said a wide range of inappropriate things. We just scrapped that entire podcast twice. Twice. We did that <laughs> twice. Cut okay, twice. I'm feeling better already. Yeah, so top... if you, if you <laughs> tell me, if you text me Wednesday and you're like, Amy, I don't love I said this podcast is to one promote people in a positive way. Mm-hmm. It is never to cause me drama. As I say all the time, the minute this causes me drama, I'm going to quit doing it.
0: The, um, the hardest question there, that re- the, the question that really stumps people is usually what's your favorite movie. Favorite movie. So, you know, no one has a good answer to that you know, or already answered that.
1: Even the Garden state film festival, which we were like, how do you not have
2: yeah. your favorite? movie?" We were
0: like, Oh, wrong thing. question wrong questions that
1: was strange
2: <laughs> I'm, my, so my question is how do you have just one favorite movie well if you want
1: to do a couple that's okay but people just get like
0: Something. silent
2: when we <laughs> What's their
0: but you're right eileen i have mean, I like five like yeah know, and, right. and
2: sometimes it'll change with my mood it's the same thing when people ask me what my favorite song is i probably have five or six and they're not by any artists that are are in any way musically related to another. It would be like the Ramones, Delamitri, um, Uh you know, like stuff all over the place.
1: Okay, so well, let's circle back. So welcome, everybody, uh, to Asbury Pod. It's May 1 and you're going to probably hear this a week or two from May 1. And we are here with Councilwoman Eileen Chapman, who is who is not here as a well. I mean, she can talk about city stuff, but not here as a councilwoman. Um, here to really talk, and I, you know, I refer to you as like, you're the all things music, because I know nothing about music, and you are my all things music in Asbury Park. Um, so Eileen, do a, and we want to, you know, one of the main reasons we really wanted to have you on was to talk about the um, Springwood Ave concerts on Monday nights, and, and how that, and then we'll talk about all the um, all the other fascinating things about you. I was texting Joe, and I was like, super fascinating. Eileen is mm-hmm. going to be like, easy as easy gets. Um, okay, Eileen, you wanna just do an introduction on yourself and then we'll we'll start bombarding you with questions.
2: Sure, so um, as you mentioned, I'm on the city council in Asbury Park. Um, I'm also the uh, director of the Bruce Springsteen Archives and Center for American Music at Monmouth University. So I'll go through my music stuff um, and leave all the other stuff out. I'm um, on the board of the Asbury Park um, Music Foundation um and i curate the music in springwood park on monday nights and also help to promote the other music series that we have the concert band on thursday nights in um bradley park and uh last year we did the cookman avenue live series downtown when the streets were um, open to pedestrian traffic but it doesn't look like that's going to happen so we'll probably go back to the mogo green space on the boardwalk. And then I do just other music events that just pop up.
3: And you're your day the...
1: job. Oh, I was just gonna say, just to describe I've never really fully understood your day job. describe your day job again. I mean, I know what you are. I know you're the director of the Bruce Spring. I know that, but I don't know exactly what that is.
2: So it's a lot of things. It's a lot of things for one person. But um I don't know if you know this, but the Bruce Spring scene archives began in the Asbury Park Library. Um oh in uh early Bob, 2000s. under Bob Stewart yes yeah. um, you know
1: I have to say Werner talked a lot you know I have a different relationship with Bob Stewart
2: yeah um, but
1: um Werner talked a lot about Bob, Bob Stewart when we had him on
2: it was under Bob Stewart though Bob Stewart really didn't want the collection to come there for various reasons and I'll get to that but I, I was managing the stone pony in the early 2000s um and and I I guess maybe I should say I managed the stone pony and Mrs. James well I feel like that's lane. your claim to fame, <laughs>
1: Eileen. When John, when when we, when we were going through like council people that we wanted to serve on the council and he was like, Well, she managed the pony and I was like, Oh my God, then she'll be able to handle the council. Mm-hmm. Jesus.
0: <laughs> and uh, Eileen, I read at one point, were you did you manage the fast lane way Yeah
2: the Fast Lane before the Pony. And then I was also on the board of the um, Jersey Shore Jazz and Blues Foundation. So we created Riverfest in Red Bank. And we used to have those huge concerts in Marine Park. They bring like 100,000 people. And then I also managed uh, the Belmar Seafood Festival for a number of years and also booked the music for that. And then back prior to that, uh, there was this amazing Clearwater festival that used to take place out at Sandy Hook, right on the water. And I was part, I was on the board of Clearwater and booked the entertainment for that festival as well. So back to your day gig. So you wait started. Minute, one on more the, thing. Oh, yeah, I opened guys. the first all compact disc store in New Jersey in the eighties. <laughs> and the first female, the only female compact disc store in New Jersey. And when we say compact disc, is that a tape?
0: Oh, my God.
2: Oh, oh Amy. <laughs> we have to
0: delete that. That's embarrassing. It
2: was somewhere between a vinyl and a stream. Okay. I don't know what a, I'm going to Google it right now. Really? Because I'm not clear. Wait, so um, when you say you don't know much about music, now I get it. Yes.
0: Yeah. Bonafides established. Um, okay.
2: So well, that's I- my I- day
0: job. Well, I was thinking, Eileen, I did have one question about those because I went, that, I went on your, uh, on your, on your bio on the, on the council. You're also part of the Asbury Park Angels, the Asbury Park Historical Foundation, the Asbury Park Museum, the Asbury Park M- Music Foundation, which we talked about. Um, the Asbury Park Green Team, Quality of Life uh, Committee, Asbury Park Recreation Committee, Sunset Lake Commission, Wesley Lake Commission, and in addition to um, being the director of the Bruce Springsteen Archive. So, are there more than one of you, or is it just two?
2: I just keep going. (laughs) That's it. I just said to my husband this morning, just dress me, turn me around and shove me out the door and tell me where I'm going. Um, Yeah. I just, I, I don't I don't know what to say. And under
0: the Asbury, Asbury Park Music Foundation, there's so many events like you had just mentioned, you know, you you know, not only the Jazz and Blues Foundation and the summer, uh, Spring um, Springwood App Music, but you also have the the um, music of the island and the, the little St. John's Island in the middle of the like. That Park, was
1: super fun. Yeah. You, yeah. Know, you have to talk yeah. about that. Yeah. So well, first the, go do your day job. Could we all attempt to stay on one <laughs> Topic okay. Throughout this podcast, it's only 45 sure.
2: minutes. Go. So, I, I think I started this and then went off track. So, the uh, Bruce Springsteen archives began in the Asbury Park Library. So, in like 2001, there was this Springsteen fanzine called Backstreets, it's the longest running music fanzine in the country. And and the guys who own Backstreets were beginning to realize that when they wanted to do research for articles, it was difficult to find old newspaper clippings and magazines for research purposes. And so they decided to put out an international call because this is an international um, fanzine and tell people, hey, fans, send us your stuff. We'll create an archive and we'll have it live somewhere where it will be accessible to the public. So they put this call out, they got about 700 items and they went to the Asbury Park Library and asked if they could uh, store these archives in the library. But in turn, the library would have to make these this collection accessible to the public when when the anyone from the public wanted to see it. So the library really said, you know, we're understaffed. We don't have the room. We don't think we can do this. They then went to a councilwoman who then told the library they needed to take this collection. And so this collection of 700 pieces began at the library. Um, fans started to come from all over the world because people come to Asbury Park for music. So while they're here for music, they want to... Um, Go see something else music related and the fact that the Springsteen archives are in our library, uh, it made it an easy trip for them an easy destination. As Bruce continued to tour and items began to flow in again from each tour you have to figure newspapers magazines uh, memorabilia from concerts It, it started to get to the point in the library, where they just couldn't handle it anymore, and this group of people, they called themselves the Friends of the Bruce Springsteen Collection, uh, helped to manage this collection in the library. They tried to help Bob Stewart the best they can, but they eventually ran out of room. They started collecting pieces in their homes. So now pieces of this collection were in our library and in people's homes all over the country. And, and so I had reached out to them. At that point, in essence, they would consider bringing the collection to Mammoth. And it was a fan-based collection at that point. Uh, and so over, the, over a few years and a, a series of conversations, this collection ended up coming to Monmouth University in 2011. And I just naturally assumed it would go to our library. Well, our library faced the same issues that the Asbury Park Library faced in the fact that they didn't have the staff nor the space for this growing collection. And so the president at Monmouth um, provided me with a, a Cape Cod style house um, and we were able to bring all of the pieces of this collection, whatever was in the library, whatever people had in their homes, to Mammoth. And when I when I first thought about, when I reached out to my dean and said, "Hey, you know, what do you think about bringing this collection here?" Um, I was still thinking 700 pieces. Um, it turns out it was 15,000 pieces at that point. So the collection had, had grown tremendously. And so now we had this huge collection and we needed to kind of merge all the pieces together. There was a lot involved with bringing it to Monmouth, but there it is. And at this point I was the associate director of the Center for the Arts. So I was booking music in the Pollock Theater and supporting and promoting all the arts on campus. So I already had a full time job and now sort of took this on as a sideline, you know, whenever I I could. And you went, prior to that,
1: you were running The Pony, right? That was your gig before?
2: Before I went to Monmouth. I went to Monmouth in in 2006. Once The Pony was sold to Asbury Partners, I left. Um, I opted out and and, um, went to Monmouth University at that point. And
1: how long were you working
2: at The Pony? So I was at The Pony for four years. And then worked at McLoon's up in Seabright for a year. Managed McLoon's up at Seabright, and then came to Mammoth in uh, two thousand six.
1: So I feel like working the pony is a story.
2: <laughs> That's a whole podcast in itself. Uh, <laughs> and and you know it, it's a a lot of what is different about the pony is that. You know, your day job, my day job now is pretty much an eight o'clock in the morning till eight o'clock at night job. The pony was a 10 o'clock in the morning till four o'clock in the morning job. And so what I really appreciated when I got to Monmouth was that the hours are were a lot more easy to deal with than, you know, what I had at the pony.
0: I when you. I didn't mean to bring us back to the archive, but if you have 15,000 pieces, do you have an archivist or a librarian, or is that you?
2: That is me. So hmm. I am a team of one. And in the archives world, they called us the lone arrangers. And so there's a whole group of lone arrangers who network with each other. Um, so I, I was really learning on the job. So this collection came to Monmouth. Um, and as I said, it was a fan-based collection. and uh, what I is sure that not? you
1: you've said that twice now what does it mean when you say fan-based collection
2: So the the collection did not come from the artist it came from the artist fans
1: Okay and that's different sometimes there's collections that are that come physically from the actual artist
2: Yes, and this started okay. as a fan-based collection. And one of the things I have to say is that, you know, there were a lot of music magazines back in the day, back in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Those magazines shut their doors and never made provisions for archiving. Newspapers have. And so, um, you know, it makes it just makes the magazine collection that these fans collected so much more valuable because they're almost impossible to get anymore. They go for hundreds of dollars. For magazine, so my so friends, some
1: well, can I ask you a question? So some fan says, "Hey, I have whatever a bandana from Bruce Springsteen or something like that. I don't know, and they want to submit it to the collection. You say yes, no, maybe. Is that how it works?
2: I need to know the provenance. I need to know where did that bandana came from. Okay, huh. um, what can you tell me about the background of that bandana? Because it could be anybody's bandana." Um, and so we take items that are either um, significant to researchers, because we have a lot of researchers that come in. Anybody who writes a Springsteen book, anybody who does a Springsteen movie. Uh, we worked with Rolling Stone when they did their 50th anniversary. We work with Sony Music when they do all the repackaging for all of their box sets. Um, and then we have fans that come in, so fans want to see a whole different set of items. They want to see posters or tickets or things that they may relate to from the times that they went to concerts. Um, We also do exhibits, so we have to think in terms of accepting items, what are going to be exciting in exhibits. So there's a whole lot of criteria um, that go into the conversations that we have with people when they want to donate items to us. So in 2017, we reached out Bob Santelli, who is a good friend of mine, taught at Monmouth, opened the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, um, opened the Jimi Hendrix Experience, uh, founding director of the Grammy Museum, um, was a good friend. We, we were at the Jersey Shore Jazz and Blues Foundation together. I reached out to Bob and, um, you know, sort of brought him in on all this. And at one point he said to me. I think we should reach out to Bruce and see if he wants to donate his stuff to us. And we had always known that Bruce's stuff was going to go to the Rock Hall. Bruce's manager, John Landau, is on their board of directors. Um, it was just something that was known out in the museum world. And so, Bob said, I, "I I think we have you know a good story. You know, Bruce's items, Bruce's papers, they should be here in Monmouth County. They should be at Monmouth University. Bruce performed there nine times." um you know he lives miles away the asbury park music scene is miles away we're in the tri-state area we're going to get visitors where when your items are in cleveland you know you get some visitors to right. go to the rock hall but you're not going to get the amount of visitors that come to the tri-state area and they belong in new jersey and so bob pitched john landau um to talk to Bruce. We wanted to get John Landau's thoughts on this first. And John said, I love the idea. Let me talk to Bruce. So Bob Santelli flew in from California, met John out of Bruce's house. They presented the whole idea. And in 2017, we did an evening with Bruce Springsteen at Monmouth University. It was an interview. Bob did an interview with Bruce and Bruce announced that we would be his official repository. Oh, wow. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, it was really exciting. So I came on board then. I went over as a full-time director to the archives. So what that day job means is that I, as you mentioned, you know, people donate items. So cataloging all of those items, each of those items, when you put them into a catalog, there needs to be a million descriptions descriptions and keywords and publishers and authors and anything that people might use as keywords to research an item. So there's that. And once we get them documented, then we have to get them on our website. We need to get them filed. Um, we do off-site research for people. We just did help someone at Oxford University, someone at Binghamton University, and someone at UPenn um, do papers. So we do a lot of off-site research. And I have to just stop and say I have nine student employees who work with me at Monmouth. That are amazing. And we carry visits. Oh, nice. So I've got this big traveling exhibit, Bruce Springsteen Live, that opened at the Grammy Museum Experience in Newark. And just two weeks ago, we went out to the Woody Guthrie Center in L.A. We did a big opening there. It goes no Bruce, Woody Guthrie Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hmm. And then it goes to the Grammy Museum L.A. in October. Um, and it's a 4000 square foot exhibit all about the live concert experience. Oh, we also, wow. we also have items at the Grenold Opry from the Tom Jode era. They have um, an exhibit, uh, rock music at the at the Opry. We've got items at the Grammy Museum, Mississippi. They have an MTV anniversary exhibit there. We've got items at the Grammy Museum now and a songs of conscious sounds of freedom exhibit. Um Uh, I just uh, had our students just curated a small pop-up exhibit over at the Guggenheim Library at Monmouth. We have another one too, I'm trying to think. There's another one I'm missing. And we did, we had done a big exhibit in Freehold called um, uh, His Hometown, uh, the Bruce Springsteen story. That's that's down now, but this traveling exhibit is gonna travel the country for a couple of years now. So we go to each opening and um, install it and, do some programming around it.
0: Wow. That's a pretty dynamic archive. So it's not just there, like it's proactively multiple places in the country.
2: It's yes. Multiple Mm. places in the country. and There's a possibility of us going to Europe. You know, this exhibit was supposed to open two years ago um, and it was supposed to do six locations in the United States and then three in Europe. And then the pandemic hit and every museum closed down. And so museums are backed up. They've got exhibits in the queue. Um, we, I curated a 4,000 square foot exhibit, but the first two locations only have enough room for half of that. Mm-hmm. So there's 2,000, we did 2,000 square feet in Newark, um, brought that to uh, the Guthrie Center, which is a whole different setup. So, um, and I actually like this setup better. Uh, but each individual location is going to be just a little bit different. And we try to customize it for each location, too. So maybe posters from some um, locations in in that area or uh, tickets or, you know, something just to customize it a little for each area that this exhibit goes to. I
1: think that that makes sense, actually. But can know. we get to a little bit of the Asbury Park Music Foundation? What, what were you yeah. going to say, Joe?
0: Oh, and it's not really, I mean, I mean, the archive. When you mentioned Europe, it's like it's hard to describe how big Bruce is. And he might be more popular in Europe than he is here, if that's possible. When I look at concert footage, there people lose their minds. Still, I've, I've seen Bruce a lot, and Americans are always on their cell phone. And then the last show I was out at, at Newark, people left early, left the, during the encore to catch the train properly. That does yeah. not happen. That does not happen in any, any European city. Um, So I think it would be a smash hit in in any European location if you brought it.
2: Yeah, and ideally it would be in locations that we didn't have to do any translation like like London or Ireland or places that um, it it would be an easy fit. And actually one of Bruce's first shows in Ireland at Slane Castle, the crowd was so intense that it actually scared the band. I mean, the band went off for intermission and Bruce thought, Maybe we shouldn't be doing this. Maybe we shouldn't be doing these huge outdoor concerts. It was frightening. It was hot. People had been drinking all day. They were like dropping. It was, you know, but I hear the same thing. I've not seen Bruce overseas, but I hear it's something that I need to experience because it's a whole other whole other world over there.
0: And just to note: you hear my cat in the background. He's decided that now is the time he wants to start shouting. So it's not a baby crying. It is my cat.
2: I didn't hear him.
1: <laughs> so let's talk a little bit, uh, Eileen, about the Asbury es- Park Music Foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about that. Tell, Can you tell us kind of how, um, you know, the Monday night concert series? And, and I'm going to say that is probably, if not my favorite event, in my top three favorite events in Asbury Park, just in the, you know, sometimes we're such a big city in the summer that you go to the beach and you don't see anyone you know. And then you go to the Monday night concert and everybody there, you know, and then a whole bunch of new people as well. It's like it's this little slice of Americana. So can you tell us a little bit about the foundation, but also how that concert, um, that Monday night concert came into fruition?
2: Sure. So I'll start with the foundation. The um, in 2011, the uh, Smithsonian Museum was doing a traveling exhibit. And it was called, um, shoot, now I'm not going to remember this. New Harmony. We, so, oh, the Sonyan Institute brought this traveling exhibit to Asbury Park, and it was called New Harmonies. It was an exhibit that was actually curated by Bob Santelli, my friend. And um, it usually went to suburban areas where people didn't have a, a lot of access to music venues, but Bob really wanted it to come here to Asbury Park. It went into the Asbury Park Library. And a whole bunch of us volunteers sort of started to create programming around it. So we sent musicians into schools to show school kids how to play guitars and banjos. Uh, There were listening stations at the library. Every genre of music was explained and kids could listen to them on their um, headsets. And we started a bunch of concerts. So we curated concerts again, using every style of music. So we would do a jazz concert. We did the Soul of Asbury Park concert in the Paramount. Um, we did uh, blues music. We even did something like, I think it was like Himalayan throat music. I mean, we really went deep to provide any kind of music possible that, that might interest people. Um, and we saw people coming back to Asbury Park that hadn't been here in a long time because they found this exhibit really exciting. Um, and, and, you know, Asbury Park is known as a music city, so anything to do with music brings people to Asbury Park. So there was such a response, not only from the local residents, but visitors and also school children that out of that grew the Asbury Park Music Foundation. Um, our mission was to help promote local music, but also to bring music to the children of the city. And so. um, Do you
1: play a musical instrument, Eileen,
2: or no? Well, I took piano once, and I took guitar for a little bit. Okay, yeah, just curious, because you're you're such
1: a music aficionado, I wondered if you played.
2: Every musician needs an audience. I'm the audience. Yeah, same, Mm -hmm. same. So th- sorry, that, I digress. So then, um, you know, and and we, you know, that was our mission. And so we were putting concerts on, you know, when we could, and and uh, also doing what we could to get instruments in the hands of children in the schools. Uh, John Liedersdorf opened the Lake House uh, and started the Lake House um, Music Academy for children. Uh, we raised money for scholarships and. When Springwood Park opened in, six years ago, we decided that that would be a perfect place. It's got a stage in the park. Um, opening of the park, um, we wanted to have a Monday night concert series there. Uh, we had actually submitted for a Levitt grant that year to to fund the concerts. The Levitt grant we found was so restrictive that it often left out local talent. So there were some criteria, the bands needed to have a website, they needed to have merchandise. I mean, there were things that bands needed to have that some of the local bands didn't. And so I think we booked uh, the concerts using the Levitt grant for the first two years. But I don't think initially, I, I think the first year was, it was our trial year. And it really gave us insight as to what people wanted to see and didn't want to see in Springwood Park.
1: And yeah. what did people want to see and, did, and what didn't they want to
2: see? Just curious. So, they didn't want to see acoustic music at all. They oh. wanted to dance. People want to dance. Okay. And so, they- People wanted, dance
1: in that park all the time. So, that makes yes. sense. Right?
2: They loved, you know, we got the greatest response from R&B music, soul music, um, anything sort of upbeat. Like, you know, the Soul Cruisers do a lot of upbeat horn music. Horn bands were very popular. And so we spent the first year kind of really feeling it out. What do people want to see? What do people not want to see? And people were pretty definite about what they don't want to say. They'll come up and say, don't bring these people back here anymore. Um, (laughs)
1: And would you say that's how, how has
2: that changed over the years or has it? So what it's allowed us to do is actually curate the series. So we don't just take submissions from bands and, and put them into Springwood Park. We really vet the bands out. Um, We bring a lot of returning bands, but we don't always want to have the same show, but we, there are bands that are people's favorites. So, you know, maybe Des and Swagmatics, we did for two years in a row and then, you know, gave her a pass on the third year, but then would bring her back. Leon Holmes, the Soul Cruisers, uh, JT Bowen, uh, the Louis Prima band. I mean, there are bands that just, people just love. And, and they spend, you know, the whole time dancing and, and having a great time. And so it, it's being there now we're going into our sixth year, really gives us a whole lot of insight as to what this series should look like.
0: And that's um that's Louis Prima Jr. you mentioned, right?
2: Louis Prima Jr, who puts on a great show, and that's always been funded. So that comes self-funded. So it's not even um, Anthony Sylvester, who lives here in Asbury Park, is the director of the uh, Prima Foundation. And so he has always funded that concert for us. And he's funded some other acts as well. And so the, these concerts cost us about, it, our budget is about $40,000 a year for these Monday night concerts because we pay the bands as a, as a music foundation. You know, we want to make sure that bands get paid. There's a value to art that people don't always recognize. Um, you know, we pay for the sound system, um, some advertising. So there's, there's a pretty hefty budget to put these shows on. But Amy, I agree with you. I think this is one of the events that brings people from all over Asbury Park into one space, you know, right. and, and people interact. And, and it's, you know, it, it's just always a great Monday night. It's One of my favorites as well.
1: Yeah, no, it's definitely one of my favorites. Now, when you're doing, are you... And again, just because I have no idea how this works, like if you see, if you're at the Pony one night and you see a local talent that you think is good, is do you like put that on your list of people yeah, to definitely. potentially put around? Absolutely. So give, like, give us an example.
2: Uh, well, Des, Des was one of the ones that, you know, when we first started the series, Des wasn't on the scene. And so um, she was one. We brought in um, Ocean Avenue Stompers, Waiting on Mongo. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there are bands that we see that we figure. And sometimes we're not sure if they're going to be a good fit. So we'll do a co-bill instead of have them, um, you know, just be the one headliner. We'll bring in two acts that, were, that are maybe new and we want to feel people out on. And we'll do two short sets with two different bands. And then we, the other thing we do is that we get local openers. So the, as, the winners of Asbury Parks Got Talent open up um the kids who the students from the lake house recording academy you know they create bands they do Um, and so there they always come as openers uh the hip-hop institute from the boys club we get openers there and you know that gives us another opportunity to bring some other locals on who you know may start off as openers but then go up to be headliners
1: JT Bowen is one of my favorite. The guy's like in his eighties or certainly late seventies and has more energy that I'm exhausted. Just watching him work the stage and jump around and sing and He's, like, so good to me. Every time I see him, I have
2: such a crush on him when he's performing. He's, uh, he's amazing, and he's actually played with three different bands over the last three years. So, as I said, we don't, certainly don't want to do the same show every year. We want to have some variety to it and introduce people to some new music. But the fact that he plays with three different bands gives us the opportunity to have him back every year with a new band. Yeah, no, he's me. amazing.
1: And then, to, so, the more recently, though, is St. John's Island, which has been... Yeah. Tell
2: us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, you know, when the clubs were closed, there was really nowhere to go see music, live music. The Pony wasn't doing outdoor music. Um, Wonder Bar wasn't doing music during the pandemic. It just wasn't happening anywhere. I could never imagine Asbury Park with no music. And so we created this series on St. John's. It was Sundays at St. John's. and we used a combination of emerging talent and um, established acts, and it was a twenty dollars fee to get in. We we you know drew circles on the grass and had people socially distance, and um, it sold out. It sold out every time. Um, we stopped it after the pandemic because now the clubs are doing live music again, and so we we halted St. John's, not knowing if we could compete against the clubs. Uh, with some of them offering free music. So you go to the Asbury Park Yacht Club, the music f- is free. You go to the Asbury Hotel, the music is free. Are people likely going to pay $20 to come to St. John's Island? I don't know.
1: And was that hard to set up? I feel like that island's been,
2: Yeah. it, it was an easy setup for you guys. It was okay. a dream. Yeah. You know, people wanted to play. And we didn't even have a stage there. We had like a small platform and a small sound system. And so people really adapted because they just wanted to be out.
0: I mean, you even had Steve Forbert play there.
2: Yeah, Steve, yeah. Steve played, exactly. He's an old friend.
0: I, you know, was, uh, well, I mean, that's a separate conversation about Steve Forbert and Asbury Park. I had no idea. He, uh, you know, I've always seen him play in and around. I only found out recently, I guess, does he live here?
2: He lives a, in Shark river Hills, uh, but it's just, it's, I have, I have a photo from 1983, I think at Mrs. J's mm-hmm. where Steve Forber got up and played with George Thies. George Thies was Bruce's in Bruce Springsteen's first band, the Castiles. Mm-hmm. So I've got a, a photo from Mrs. J's with, with George and, um, and Steve playing together.
0: Yeah. Long time Asbury guy, you know, um, Oh, Mrs. J's
2: is thing. a
1: is a long time staple too of Esri Park. You right? I feel like after I got here, before I got here, Mrs. J's.
2: That was one of my favorite jobs when I managed Mrs. J's. That was. And and tell were- us about Mrs. J's. Yeah,
0: where was it? There's a lot that? of
2: things I can't tell you about Mrs. J's. What uh-huh. I can tell you <laughs> is that. And we, well, where was it? So you know where the Stone Pony summer stage is now? That parking lot between... So there was a Stone Pony on the corner of 2nd and Ocean. And then there was Mrs. J's in the middle of the block. And then the Gold Digger. Initially, the Stone Pony was also Mrs. J's. So the Stone Pony was Mrs. J's inside. And then the parking lot, where the parking lot is now, was Mrs. J's beer garden. In 74, the wieners who owned... Mrs. Jays sold the Stone Pony building to Butch and Jack and kept the beer garden for a while and then sell, sold off the beer beer garden to uh, David Portman and, and Stanley Ben, And um, Steve Resnick, whose parents owned places on the boardwalk, Steve went in to manage it in, I think it was 80 or 81, and I went in to work for him. And then he left. I ended up managing it, co-managing it with two other people. And, um, it, was a and seasonal- it was a music venue. Yeah, it was a seasonal operation. There was a kitchen um, with a um, just a small kitchen with, uh, you know, kind of like diner type seating in there. And then there was the bar and then there was the beer garden. Outside there were picnic tables. It was an outdoor beer garden. And and we were open till three o'clock in the morning. So after the Pony closed, we were still open for food, not the bar side, but the food side was still open very late. And we had some great bands there. It was, you know, it was a great time. It was seasonal. So it was only, you know, the job was only from like, I don't know, April through September. And um it was a, a lot of bikers came there because they could watch their bikes from inside the bar. They would kind of wind their bikes up on ocean Avenue. Um, and
0: uh, it was. Uh, I, I Eileen, I, when I first started bartending, I worked in places that would close at three. Um, that is a much different kind of like, that's so radically different. The, the bars that close at two now, they start wrapping up round one, really. Yeah. When bars closed at three. I mean, you know, the first couple of years I was bartending until they changed uh, the town I was in, changed the time. I was rolling up out of there at six in the morning every every day. I mean, that's a, that's a tough job to work that those kind of hours because, you know, it's yeah. busy, busy, busy. You clean everyone. You know, the last customers really don't leave until like 3.15 or 3.20. Then you got to start cleaning up and get out. And, uh, you know, that's a tough, uh, <laughs> that's really really a tough job and a lot of fun. Uh, when you're when you're younger. But after a while, that does wear in you. But that. You know, that's a different kind of culture. I, mean, I can't think of any bars in New Jersey that are open that late anymore. I think New York has bars open till four, but nothing in New Jersey. yet. I no,
2: we would, we would leave there sometimes in the daylight because sometimes after your shift is over, you know, everybody's still sort of, you know, wide awake. I've been working all night. I've been on my feet. I'm not ready to go home yet. And so we'd grab some pictures of beer and go sit back in the beer garden. Often. Some of the bands that played at the Pony would come over and sit at the beer. Nick Lowe came and sat with us one night at the <laughs> beer garden. So, like, all these people would just come sit. And then then you'd hear, like, Delissa come and empty the dumpsters. It's like 6 o'clock in the morning, and you know, I got to go home. <laughs> and how long were you at Mrs. James? So, I was there for four years. And then um, the owners wanted me to take over the lease completely. Um, and. I didn't want to do that. I mean, I was co-managing with two other people. Things were very comfortable the way they were. I had three small children and just couldn't commit to anything more than I was already doing. So I left at that point, um, worked for Pepsi, a pier pub for a little bit, worked at the Long Branch Pier. uh, um, And
1: when did you land at Fastlane? 1998,
2: I think. 99. So when I had my compact disc store, the building was sold in 2000. I was in Belmar on Main Street. And the funny thing, is was, it was Kristen Fuscarino's parents and grandparents that owned that building. I think you did tell me that. Yeah, you well, that. I used to, His grandmother used to come with Kristen in the carriage to collect the rent for the for the compact disc store. I've so, been the, I,
0: I was in that store. I didn't realize that when you said Belmar, I know exactly where it is now. That yeah. You, I should, yeah, I, I was so, there.
1: So you that, opened that on your own. You were like, I'm going to open a compact disc store.
2: Yeah. So my nephew had gone to Florida and he calls me and he knows like I'm a music crazy person. I'm music fanatic. He said, I just bought this thing called a compact disc player and I bought compact discs for it. And he comes back from Florida and I listen to it. and I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. And so I go to like Sam Goody's or whatever record store was in the mall and they had eight compact discs. That's it. I think like four Beatles and I don't remember what the other ones were. And I'm like, this is insane. I, I want to get compact discs. I want to get a compact disc player. I want all this stuff. And then I find out that in Europe, they've had compact discs out for a while. And they had these huge collections. So they'd have like 20 different CDs out from like the Yardbirds. And and like just, uh. you know, things, status quo had like 12 CDs, like things you wouldn't even think of. And so I said, I I need to do this. And so...
1: So you so you were like I found a store I'm gonna I'm gonna open a compact disc store
2: and then so That's the first thing. first day I'm uh, I'm not even thinking this may never work out I'm sitting on the floor going through boxes of stuff and a guy comes up who who had a vinyl record store down the street and he walked in he said compact discs are never going to make it he said you might as well close down now <laughs> <laughs> and what did you say I didn't I don't I don't think I said anything I think. Nothing. What are you going to say? And then yeah. he turned around and left. And it, the when
0: did his, his store close?
2: Yeah, about Jesus. four years later. But the funny thing is, Entrepreneur magazine, like two months after I opened, said the job of the future: compact disc stores. So yeah. then, what year is this? I mean, it was like eighty-five or eighty-six. It was mid-eighties. Oh, wow, interesting. It was a lot of fun. It was a place where people gathered. So people would come and hang out in the store and share music. You know, they would say, Hey, have you listened to this? Have you listened to that? You learn all new music. And then I would all all get, you know, all these promotional pieces and they would, you know, I would say, Hey, listen to this. If you like it, take it. You know, I got all these promotional posters. The kids would come in from the schools. Yeah. Take the posters. So it was like one of those places where people just kind of hung out, gathered and shared music. And I made so many great friendships there that I still have today.
0: You know, it's crazy. All the CD stores have closed, and now people are reopening vinyl stores. Yes, you right. know, and I'm, I, you know, I'm just as bad. I'm like, I don't know see all the sales vinyl behind me. I'm, 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 That's I'm the guy who's make, ruining it for CD players. But um, although I just like dirty old records, I don't like to pay for new stuff. But it, yeah, it's yeah. interesting. Everything comes around yeah. in a circle.
2: Exactly. It runs its course. And then, you know, they are there know really so people don't.
1: And and again, this is going to be my ignorance. So I thought all of us listen to our shit via like Spotify or Deezer. No. So that is not there is a, a large enough demographic to sustain record stores.
2: Uh,
0: not yet. It's... No,
2: no, no. no. Okay. People don't have that attention span anymore. So people would buy an album or a CD They'd read the liner notes. They'd engage in it. They'd listen to the whole thing. But these days everybody's got a three minute attention span when it comes to music.
0: So I don't know if there's brick or mortar stores, but like blue note records is the famous uh, jazz right. label now is reissuing all their classic um, recordings on vinyl that you can order from, um, from the website. And they're often sold out uh, because uh-huh. I'm, the, because I'm usually trying to get some of those. and, I could see them opening up a specialty store at some point. Like if you're in the city, you could go to a blue note vinyl place and get things. So I don't, I don't think you'll see Sam goodies come back, but you might see or
1: like it. tower records. I feel like when I met Heather, she oh my worked God, a yeah. tower records. Like 20, yeah. So. yeah. I, I think love, it's bad. You know,
2: no more record stores.
0: Huh. But I will say is when I tried last year, uh, when I tried to buy um, a record player for, uh, not, mm, what well, year? I've lost track of time. So yeah. the Christmas before the <laughs> pandemic, when I tried to buy a, a record, a new a new um, turntable. They were out; you could not get one. You know, and I um, couldn't get one for months. So, uh, so oh yeah, this is a separate conversation.
2: Yeah, we have one. Wow. Everybody in my family's got a turntable, so everybody listens to vinyl and CDs and. Honestly, I just went through my cassette tape collection and found some mixtapes I might start listening to again.
3: <laughs>
1: I still have mixtapes, too, somewhere in a box. But listen, we are getting close to 45, and there's a bunch of questions I have to ask Eileen, that you can bunt or you can answer. Um, they're like rapid fire, but you don't have to be rapid.
2: Go for
3: it.
1: Um, favorite establishment that is not here anymore?
2: Mrs. J's beer garden.
1: Okay. Favorite person that is not here anymore? Uh, that was a city, you know, that people in the city knew.
2: I think there's just too many to mention. I can't even, I I can't. Okay.
1: So Heather wanted me to ask you, what was a typical Saturday night in the 1990s? Out listening to music and dancing. And where were you going and were you eating first? And was there any place to eat?
2: None of So when lot. I
1: moved here, we had, so I moved here in about 2000. Yeah. And when Maryland opened market in the middle and brick wall, right. I kid you not, we called it restaurant row. We're like, oh, my God, <laughs> let's go to restaurant <laughs> row because there were two <laughs> restaurants on that street. I mean, they had um, the, the southern cooking guy, but he wasn't open at night. So it was Stunning. very few places. Yeah, there were very few places to eat. So we used to call that little block restaurant row because. It was yeah, I guess
2: we we went out of Asbury you know, okay, to he went eat. out
1: of Asbury to eat and then you came back to listen to music. And where yeah. were you going? Pony?
2: Pony Fast Lane, back and forth, Pony Fast Lane. And then the Jefferson for closing. So the Jefferson was the only bar that wasn't on bar time. You know, bars are on bar time. They set their clocks 15 minutes off. So when they tell you it's two o'clock, it's really only a quarter to two. So the Jefferson had their had their clock set on real time. So you could go to the Jefferson. For for a last drink,
3: huh.
2: <laughs> okay,
1: on the boardwalk, and you may not remember this. There was I'm going to call it a Coyote Ugly bar when we first moved here. Yeah, that
2: was Kevin Fien's place. It was right. Okay, so the- I'm
1: not like I'm not not remembering that right. Like I, I remember Cadillac. Ranch. And I walked in there and we were like, "What's up with this
2: place?" It was the Cadillac Ranch. It was Kevin Cadillac Ranch, Kevin okay. and John Luminoso. They owned it um and it was right where langosta is now
1: yeah yeah no we were uh, so i was going to ask about that pavilion because it went through a wide range of different establishments in there when i in the
2: early 2000s it had a troubled past let's put it that way okay Hmm. okay my coyote ugly all
3: right
2: (laughs) i think i and big man's we used to go to big man's too i don't remember when big man's closed up in red bank but that was another place we'd go to for music and dancing
1: and craziest night at one of either pony fast lane or mrs j's
2: no i can't talk about that you can't okay
1: (laughs) pg version of one of the craziest nights so you told me this that you might not remember. You told me this hysterical story when you were working at the pony and I don't know who showed up, but these people showed up and their car was stolen as they came in to talk to you. Yeah, no, no, no,
2: That was Tim McClune. He played so you know, I bought this first Stone Pony summer stage. So when I was managing the pony, um Tommy was on his way to Florida, to the place in Florida. And he said, look, you need a car. I'm leaving you. I think it was like $10,000. Go buy a car. I was talking to my friend Tinker and Tinker's telling me how he's got the early Springsteen stage still in his trailer and he's going to sell it. And I thought, damn, we have this empty lot. Tinker's got this stage. So I bought the stage. (laughs) So we set up the stage in, in where the summer stage is now not even thinking we might need a permit, which we did. Um, <laughs> and uh, Tommy came home and everybody said, come out and see your new car. And there's there was the summer stage. And then Tommy built us a bar for that summer stage outside. But the, yeah, McLoone, it was Tim McLoone band who played Holiday Express played on that summer stage. And while he was playing, his car was stolen. <laughs> now, that's, that's, that's a team yeah. story. Um, I mean, just crazy. things.
0: I have, I have a last question for on my um, about the Bruce archive. Does Bruce ever call looking for stuff? Yes. You know, oh, uh, interesting. I, yeah, that's got to be interesting. It's just like, you know, I was in Italy at one time and we, we don't have any more posters. That, or I lost my jacket. Did anyone turn it in?
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, we haven't had that. <laughs> but um, yes, he has.
1: And have you had it?
2: Yes. Oh, interesting. Yeah.
1: Okay. F- uh, favorite
2: movie and favorite genre of music. I'm gonna say favorite genre of music is probably l- rock. I figured that.
0: I mean, if you know who um, the Yardbirds are, you're yet surprised. That's pretty. That's a giveaway, right? You're rock and roll. Yeah.
2: I mean, really. <laughs> uh, so you, I really loved the Stiff Records era, the Nick Lowe, Dave Edmonds, Brinsley Schwartz era of music. Love that music. It's a little bit poppy pre. Punk, but you know social distortion is one of my favorite bands the ramones one of my favorite bands um jackson brown delimitri i mean i just my my music is all over the place um there's no rhyme or reason to it favorite movie again depending on my mood pulp fiction is one of them um uh steel magnolias i just watched and cried and laughed i mean just there's just <laughs> I, I The old Thin Man black and white movies. I love.
0: That um, is my favorite. I watch it every New Year's Eve. Really, and I I know more lines from that than Star Wars.
2: See, you know? old Busby Berkeley movies. I mean, oh my
0: I, goodness, it's
1: just so much. Yeah. And when you were growing up, did you have music playing a lot? Is that where you got into music, or so is it just I, being yeah. around Asbury? So wait, I, I got to do one interesting fact. Eileen's father was the city manager in Asbury Park. I don't know. You'll know what years. You can obviously describe that better than me. But that is an interesting fact about Eileen.
2: Yes. So I grew up in a house of five girls, huge house, big house. Um, We had a stage in the basement. I have sisters that are way older than me, like 12 years, 11 years older than me. I'm six years older than me. So my older sisters, boyfriends, bands would come and play on the stage. Every one of us had a record player in our rooms. My parents always played music on the record player in the living room. Um, And everybody listened to different music. So my father listened to the crooners, the Bing Crosby's, the Frank Sinatra's. My mother listened to opera. My sister, Mike, listened to doo-wop and Sissy listened to show tunes and Joni listened to folk music. And so I was listening to everybody's music. I was listening to it all on my record player in my room. And so
1: anyone have anyone made a career out of music other than you?
2: No. Just you. (laughs) Just me.
0: You no, know, I, I was just thinking about that. The Thin Man, uh, Myrna Loy, who was in that movie, lived in the Santander. In where, the Santander, where Amy and I lived, right?
2: Um, yes, and they did. They actually did one of the Thin Man movies there. Uh, I'm going to say about five years ago that I went to, maybe four years ago. Mm-hmm. They did, did it in, in the lobby. Yeah. 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 Okay, And your father was city manager, Eileen. What years? I've, so my father came here. My father was um, vice president in a production of Ballantine's Brewery when it was in Newark. And when Ballantyne started to sub out production to somewhere in the Midwest, my father became city manager here in, I'm going to say 70. I think he was here 70 to 77. And did he enjoy it? Loved it. My father lived and breathed Asbury Park. Every day he would walk downtown and talk to business people. Every night he would walk to the boardwalk and talk to business people. I don't think I saw my father in seven years because he was so immersed in in the city. It was he used to call himself Bill from Asbury Park.
3: <laughs>
2: that was his identity.
1: and you know, sometimes we get grief on the council for a wide range of things. but whenever people are are always whenever people even remotely imply that any listen, I'm the newest, and I'm twenty years, right? Over twenty years probably at this point. But you know Eileen raised you you raised your entire family here. John yeah. Moore also, I believe raised Krista here. Yvonne grew up here. We had her on. She, you know, she was here when the riots occurred. Jesse was also essentially born and raised here, but, but I have not had him on yet. So whenever people talk about, um, you know, we're trying to get like passive aggressive cracks in, it's like all of us have been here far longer than any of these people who, you know, are implying that we haven't been here a long period of time. But I always give credit for like, I think raising a family here throughout the 80s and 90s and 2000s was not an easy task.
2: It was not an easy task, but, uh, you know, the, our neighborhood and and everyone who all the kids who grew up around here who are still friends to till this at this time, you know, it was a, you know, it was it was a great place for my kids to grow up, even though Asbury Park had its difficulties. We loved every minute of it. I wouldn't I wouldn't have done it differently at all.
1: All right, Joe, you got anything else? And no, we uh, kept I, it
2: under an hour. Look nice. that.
0: No, I think I got it. Um, when's the first show on the Springwood? Um
2: uh, last Mondays. Monday in June, I think it's the 28th. I don't have my calendar on me.
1: Okay. Well, text that to me so when we do post yeah. this, we give the right date. And do you want to talk about any bands you're gonna have?
2: Um, not yet. I mean we have a couple that are that are booked, but otherwise. I don't think we're ready to go public with it yet. We don't, we haven't had our special events application accepted yet. So I, I don't like to promote things until that application's already I'm gonna done the
1: application's gonna get
2: approved that way. Yeah, oh yeah, it will. But <laughs> I know there's always a hand slap saying, why did you start promoting something when we haven't approved your application first? So right, right, right. I'm not of putting course, myself course there. Course. All
1: right, thanks guys.